Hi, uh, my name is Paul. I'm Dan. And today we have a guest with us on our Beer and Bible podcast. Um, his name is Roger Holford. Hi. Hello. Um, happens to be my dad. And we haven't recorded in a long time. And this was an impromptu throw it together at the last moment one, seeing that my dad was in town. Um, so history, a little bit of history here. I grew up in Bolivia, South America. My parents are missionaries there still for the last how many years? Going on 30 years. And currently Bolivia is experiencing a lot of political turmoil. So we want to put some disclaimers out before we continue with this podcast. It is going to be talking about, we would talk about politics. We kind of talk about that on a lot of our podcasts. We allude to it more. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be directly talking about um, a governmental change in Bolivia. Um, I don't know how many people are keeping up with the news recently. I only really hit the American news two days ago, three days ago, really. When he resigned the 11th. When Evo Morales, the, the former president, resigned. Um, and we're kind of going to be opening the discussion for this idea of what kind of the role of Christianity is in something like this, the followers of Christ, mm-hmm. but also what it looks like to actually experience something like this. Because it's something I think in the West, specifically in America, we, we don't experience. There's always been the peaceful transfer of power. And people might contest elections by tweeting or putting on Facebook how the CIA is taking over the world, but it's always been that peaceful transition between power. And so a bit of history for those those who don't know, A, where Bolivia is. Well, Bolivia is in the center of South America, a landlocked country, recognized still as the poorest country in South America. It's had relative stability politically since about the mid-80s with a series of democratically elected governments um, which have been in power um, over one, two, it's about five or six that that got through their term without too much turmoil. Things started to take uh, a bit more of a, a difficult turn in the early 2000s uh, when there was uh, the beginning of a push towards a more radical left-wing revolution, which was led, led by Evo Morales, who has been the president in recent years for the last, well, 13, nearly 14 years come January. So that, that's the history of it. Um, the, he came to power through um, his, he came as a, a union leader of the coca growers, in the center of Bolivia um, and led uh, a populist type revolution almost, um, causing uh, Gonzalo Sánchez de Rosada to resign and flee the country, Carlos Mesa, who is actually the opposition leader at the moment, was in power as his, as Goni's vice president, who was in power for 18 months and resigned, um, saying the that the country was ungovernable because of so many conflicts that were going on around in the country, economic and um, and political conflict in the country. Uh, the chairman of the Senate, president of the Senate at that time, uh, decided not to take it. He said, no, not going to do that. So that was the next person in succession. So succession yeah. under that constitution. And then the, the last person in line under the old constitution was the actual, the 
like the Lord Chief Justice or the head of the Supreme Court, which was Eduardo Rodriguez, and he took it on in a, an interim role uh, where the Constitution said that he could take it on as a caretaker president for 90 days until a, a new government was elected. And that was when Evo was elected. So Evo was elected dem democratically? Yeah. He, there was no takeover where he comes in he and takes over. 64%, I think, in his And he was the first indigenous yes. leader of Bolivia. Yeah. Absolutely. Democratically. Yeah, that was kind of acclaimed globally. You know, uh -huh. that, uh, in Latin America, there was an indigenous. And um, their people had actually been kind of marginalized, the indigenous, prior to him being elected. Yes. So most of the growth that has happened has been among, or growth of wealth has been among the indigenous people, from what I understand, or is that kind of skewed by the media? Um, it depends on what part of country you're in. I mean, uh, traditionally the indigenous people live on the west of the country, so from Cochabamba, La Paz, and Uro Potosí, um, um, would be where you would find the highest concentration of indigenous people, whereas on the east side, in, in what the Beni and Santa Cruz, Tarija, you'd have far more mixed race people. So I would say probably in Cochabamba, La Paz, yes, that's probably been the case. A lot of indigenous people have benefited, although you've still got deep poverty in El Alto de La Paz, which is the part above La Paz, <coughs> and in other places where the poverty wasn't really resolved. Um, there's been a lot of good happened under this government, and, and there's a new middle class. There's, I think you've mentioned it while we were talking beforehand about 15% of poverty, and people, 15% of poverty have been pulled out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a new middle class of people who um, uh, earning a, a good wage and, and relatively comfortable. Um, but the economic policy that he introduced of, of large pay rises on an annual basis was becoming unsustainable. Um, and it's also been published in, in the papers in Bolivia that only 20% of the workforce actually receive a salary with benefits because the majority, 80% of the workforce, still live in informal family business, driving a taxi, riding a bus, have their business out of their front room, and obviously don't pay themselves a 10 or 12% pay rise every year, plus bonuses at the end of the year and everything that a normal uh, employee would get. But so I say normal employee, they're only 20% of the work. So the economy in Bolivia isn't uh, an economy of companies hiring individuals it's more of an economy of people who are working as their own little small businesses. Survival. Family businesses. So the pay raises that he's offered, he offered them only affected, you said, they said about 20% of the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that you, you noticed that people didn't seem to be aware of that um, until it was published probably about, about a year ago. I remember seeing it in the paper. Um, and I think it was a bit of an eye-opener for quite a lot of people to understand that still 80% of the workforce were not actually benefiting from these, what were seen as amazingly 
wonderful policies that were putting everybody up on the sea, which obviously wasn't the truth. It wasn't for everybody. No, it was for, for select people. Same, yeah. yeah. But then to, to lay the like ground here, the groundwork here, Evelyn, not everything Evelyn did was bad. It, there was positive things that this president did at the okay. beginning that helped pull people and the country, stimulate the country's economy. Absolutely. Yeah, the growth, the economic growth has been over four and a half percent for the last four or five years or even more. The sad thing is because of the holding, um, keeping the currency overvalued and also because of inflation and because of fuel prices being subsidised when you haven't got the money to do it, um, the country went from uh, excess to a deficit around about two or three years ago now um, and it was becoming less and less sustainable um, so from my perspective the possibility of an economic crash was imminent yeah and it was going to happen sooner or later and i think it still probably will unless the new government manages to allow these the, the, the currency to devalue gradually rather than crash very quickly and crash. <clears throat> uh, because the exchange rate has been against the dollar the same for how many years? 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. And actually, when he first came in, he inflated the value of, of their currency because uh, the exchange rate was about eight uh, to a dollar and he pushed it to under seven to a dollar, which inflated their currency. Yeah. So why is everybody seeing them in the news? What can you give us like the short version of what he did that got him <laughs> kicked out to Mexico? Well, basically, as it's been reported in the papers, on the the presidential election took place on October the twentieth, always on a Sunday, um, and uh, they they ran the usual election process, which is relatively okay they had international observers and so on but what happened on the evening of october the 20th the the counting system the electronic counting system um, was ordered to stop by the what they call the supreme electoral court was in bolivia suspended the publication of what was happening with the count that was when the count was around about 83% of the count was in, and Evel was winning by approximately 8.5%. To avoid a second round, he needed a gap of 10% so that he would win outright. So they suspended the publication of the, of the count at that point. 23 hours later, on Monday the 21st, the Electoral Court reopened and published the results of the count, giving him over 10%. Statistically, the probability of that extra 17% giving him that extra that he needed is almost, is impossible, almost impossible. So right? us, it could be possible. For us Americans, it would be like, like we're all tuning in on election day and around 8 p.m all the news agencies are like, we're not getting any new numbers. And then it just, they're like, yeah, we're still not getting numbers. We mm -hmm. don't know who the president's going to be. And then everybody goes to sleep. You wake up the next day and, oh, guess what? This guy won again. 
for his fourth term. Yeah, yeah he was already yeah. a term overdue as well, according he to the Constitution. According to his own Constitution. But he rewrote it. Yeah. Oh, he wrote he it. He wrote it okay. in 2007 or whatever. Okay. That's when he was first in power. He rewrote the Constitution, which, because the previous Constitution only allowed one term for five years. The previous president, Gorney, had actually changed it from one term of four years to one term of five, and then his constitution actually upped it to two. Um, but then he'd already, he was at the end of his third trying to get a fourth. Having had a referendum in 2016, where the people have said, no, you can't stand for another term. <laughs> so there's been a lot of protesting. Um, there was protesting before against the incumbent president, but now it's reversed, and now there's protesting against the new government. And some are saying it's a coup. Um, some are saying that it's just the people winning back their democracy. And there's a lot of unrest that I would dare say Americans don't understand. Yeah, uh, I think the because of the way that the election was managed and this declaration of winning in the first round and everything else, there was an immediate reaction from grassroots level to, to say, shout fraud, something's wrong here, which anybody's going to think. I mean, even if even if it was, you know, a few thousand to one that that could happen, then they, nobody's going to actually believe it. It's very difficult to make a whole population believe that this has been managed well. So, obviously, opposition leaders especially <clears throat> Um, started to to build a movement of blockades. Um, there was a general strike for three weeks. Uh, now explain how a strike works in Bolivia. A strike in Bolivia means that no motorized transport moves at all. Wow. That the, the people, local people in their own little neighborhood of the city will put rocks and tires and barricades across roads so that if anything tries to go through, they can't. And if they try, they'll probably slash their tires and, and make sure that they don't go through. And they, I have never known, in 30 years in Bolivia, never known a strike like that last more than one day. Because they usually get shut down. Because they use, well, no, 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 because okay. they usually get whatever demand they've got, they okay. negotiate and they get the ear of the government and sit on the table and, and deal with it. But this time it was a full three weeks of total shutdown. And it was, it was ran by the people. It was people run by the people. The leader of the opposition was not the political guy, Carlos Mesa, who was the leader of the opposition party. It was actually, the president of the civic uh, society, as they call it, in Santa Cruz, uh, Luis, uh, Luis Fernando Camacho. He was a leader of kind of the civic movement in Santa Cruz that very often is the voice of the people. And it was, he was the one who brought everybody together. Uh, but the actual protest, the initial protest against the election result was born in Potosí, okay. which would traditionally be part of Euro's power base there and his traditional support base would have been in Potosi and as I say like Bayer's and Cochabamba. So there was a loud call from there as well and then it spread to virtually every city. And eventually Luis Fernando Camacho 
on his second attempt to try and go to La Paz because he couldn't get in the first time. They wouldn't allow him out of the airport. Flew back to Santa Cruz. He went up there uh, after almost three weeks of, of um, strike. He went with a flag, a letter of. He was determined to take a letter of resignation to Evo Morales and get him to sign it. And he took a Bible. And there has been photos circulated on all around the internet of of him and two of his mates who were went, accompanied him on this on this journey. Uh, on the evening of the tenth, I believe it was, or the, I'm trying to think it was. I think it was the tenth of November of them in the in the presidential palace, the Palacio Quemado in La Paz, with a flag on the floor with the letter and the Bible and kneeling, praying in the hallway of the, of the presidential palace. And one hour later, they've all resigned. Wow. Powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about this is the party that is now stepping up um, tends to be more... Um, was more inclined to the well they're not really stepping up it's uh appointed the one who's currently appointed to lead in the interim through the succession of yeah through the succession yeah. the constitutional um, succession was placed the fifth in line uh, to the presidency in uh, the constitution states that she has 90 days in which to call elections okay so so she's not really in power, no. it's just, it's just overseeing it's overseeing, classifying okay. country, and overseeing uh, some fair and, and just elections okay. take place well, in the country to install the government. If, if you're looking from the outside in on something like this and you see the people revolt, it looks like people taking democracy back, or the people voicing, we're not putting up with this anymore, because the, pe the people are the ones who shut down that's the cities, the country, and the government didn't listen to them this time and kind of pushed back. And it's the people that were suffering while this was happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they were prepared to, to, to strike for three weeks and go through a lot of hardship to see this happen because there was this, this pushback. Ever since the referendum that said no, you couldn't stand, which was in February of 2016, three and a half years ago, there's been a movement called 21F, because it was the 21st of February, and there's been a voice, constant voice, saying, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't, Bolivia said no, Bolivia said no, Bolivia said no, and it hasn't been listened to. And so there's there's been this echo in the background all that time for the last three and a half years. term, right? But well, for pretty much the, the whole of his last term. Mm -hmm. Because he actually, I remember the day he was re-elected for his first term, or the day after he was re-elected for his first term, he actually stood up and said, this is my last term. He actually said it. <laughs> what do you think changed that made him decide to go through all the work to try and keep the power for another four years? Rather than leaving it, I mean, he could have left on good terms. And his, done, his yeah. party would have had a chance to win this. And you, you could have known as a good president. Him. I don't know if you've seen there, there was an interview that was published that he did an interview with BBC Mundo, the guy from Uruguay, I've read it in Spanish. Okay. 
But it was interesting, you know, he was actually asked, why didn't you decide to leave through the wide door that was open to you to finish well? And he just, he just took it as a, an attack, an accusation against his politics. He didn't mm-hmm. answer the question. So power, power had gotten to him. I think, personally, if you look at politics globally, if you, once you see a president or any person, president, prime minister, or any person in power for anything over about 10 years, they start to go a bit off the rails, <laughs> whether it's Maggie Thatcher and Tony Blair in England, or whether it's Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Putin has come to London. Putin in Russia, or you've got the guy in China who's now fairly dies. There's something happens when you have power too long. And I think it, I don't know, it's something to do with human nature. Yeah. And, and having listened to that or, or read through the transcript of that interview today, I was, it was remarkable how, how blinkered he was as to the reality of his own country. He was still very fixed on his own support and his own people, which is fair, but he couldn't see past that. Because um, yeah. kind of he, he's a president who could have left a good legacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing in reading or reading through it and just hearing from friends in Bolivia is the role that kind of church had in it. Mm-hmm. And, and I know it's, I, I mean, this is a beer and Bible podcast and we talked about mm-hmm. politics for like the last 20 minutes. Politics that nobody, nobody knew about really, a lot, I'm right. assuming. Yeah. But the role of the Christian in a revolution like this. Mm-hmm. For those that are still listening. Yeah. <laughs> if you made it past the Bolivian politics. Um, the way that we wanted to tie this in and um, the reason I last minute um, messaged Paul and said, hey, is your dad still in town? Is I really started to think about the role of Christians in a political upheaval like this. And just um, within the past year, we had a high-ranking U.S. politician quote from Romans 13, which says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you, have, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now this has been used by governments for 2,000 years, <laughs> pretty much since Paul wrote since, it. And yeah. Probably something he wished he never, writ, he never wrote. I, yeah, I think um, if Paul was in a grave, he'd be turning in <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. But um, when things like this happen, and obviously the we, we talked about this off the recording before, um, the, the left-wing government that Morales was running um, was more pagan, more traditional, South American. Um, they had kind of nudged Christianity to the side, which Christianity, the Catholic Church in 
particular has always had ever since they came over has had a strong influence there but now it seems as if it's swinging the pendulum the other way and what Paul was getting at was there was actually a Christian candidate a pastor who stepped into the elections at the last moment which actually turned this whole thing on its head so you want to speak to that a bit yeah I don't know that anybody else has really taken that into account it was remarkable to me to when I was thinking and processing what was going on and you suddenly see this guy who's got involved in the presidential race just about months before the elections um, totally unknown guy nobody knew who he was you know, a very Christian guy Korean background I believe and, and he's he's suddenly got involved in the race and you know, and he's obviously got a lot of popularity because he's a Christian and he's caused quite a lot of, of um, support from churches and so on evangelicals especially uh, because the, the, the other guy behind him uh, Oscar Ortiz was well known in the political arena and everything else and he got about 1.8% and this, this pastor this Christian guy got over eight percent, having only been in the arena for about a month. But the thing that I was kind of looking at when you analyze it, if he hadn't got involved, then Mesa, who was the opposition leader again, you know, in the election with him, would have got that probably got the majority of that eight percent would have been his, might have been partly split between yeah. all of these and him, but but. Evil wouldn't have had anything close to the 10%. Evil, he wouldn't have gotten that vote. No. Because he wouldn't have gotten a Christian vote no. either way. No. Not at all. And there wouldn't have been the mathematical ability for him to try and almost try and fake it would the 10%. Been, it would have been way more difficult Because if, if you're winning by 6 and then in the morning you're winning by 10, mm -hmm. that's a huge difference. But, so it's an interesting thing, you know, should we, should the church be involved in politics? That's the question I would ask. I always say, well, yes, we should be have influence in politics of the church, but not necessarily be standing as an elected official within government. I'm not sure that we should. You, I'll, before we start recording, um, we had an interesting, you, you made an interesting statement where you said, a Christian or a pastor specifically is voted into office and all of a sudden war come, breaks out, that somebody's coming to attack you, what do you do as a president and a pastor? What's the reaction that you should have as a Christian? That's the hard part where, where, mm -hmm. where, where the preservation of the state, does that, is that more important than Christian values of peace and, and nonviolence? Because we've talked nonviolence a um, mm -hmm. ton on this podcast how we yeah. are advocates of Christian nonviolence. Yeah. Well, that was what, what was encouraging about this process in Bolivia is that the, the opposition the protested against the results and did everything peacefully. Yeah. All of it. There, there were 10 deaths during those three weeks, but those 10 deaths were all at the hands of, of supporters of the ex-president. Okay. Sadly, there's been some others since then. I haven't investigated that. It's been eight able supporters, but I think that has been 
because of the armed forces getting involved and stuff like that. So. Now in countries like Bolivia, where a lot of people's lives are more localized, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So like the people in your town, they're more or less working in your town, yeah. living in your town, mm-hmm. buying their groceries in your town. In America, especially in the Midwest, we're used to driving an hour someplace or two hours someplace mm-hmm. um, to go and buy the couch we want or buy the car we want mm-hmm. and do all of this. Um, so there's distance, there's tens, if not hundreds of miles between us and events happening at any given point. Mm-hmm. Now, where your organization is based, how far are you from the capital where all of this is going down and does political unrest in the capital immediately transfer to people like in your town or is your town kind of like, oh, that crazy capital's on fire again? And, well, you know what I mean? Well the, well, the interesting thing is that the opposition and the main voice of the opposition was in Santa Cruz, in our town. Oh, okay. So it wasn't in the capital? No, it either. wasn't in the capital. I mean, it, it, it happened in the capital as well, yeah. but it was happening in all the cities around the country. And what was happening was that uh, Luis, Luis Fernando Camacho was actually the voice that pulled them together. And a lot of civic leaders from the other cities came to Santa Cruz. They had a massive, what they call Cabindo, <laughs> which is like a town hall, but, but on a, you know, half a million people Jeez. at the foot of the, the, the Christ statue in the city and stuff, and these massive um, rallies and things like that. Um, and that's the kind of response this was getting, huge, huge numbers. So that was happening just in your neck of the woods. Yeah, right? yeah. So absolutely. it wasn't just a kerfuffle up in, in La Paz. It no, was no, no. Uprisings in all the major cities. Yeah, all the department, the departmentals were yeah, uprising. So for Americans, it would be like if something was happening in Washington, but simultaneously, every major city, Grand Rapids, um, every major city was experiencing their yeah. same revolt. Mm-hmm. With a common, with a common voice. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. And in some places, there's been more resistance to that voice. But there's a particular town that's four hours north of Santa Cruz called Yapacani. And for some reason, that town is, I mean, they're just having real, real problems in that town. But it's a, it's a small town. It's localized there, though. Yeah. Some of the pictures and videos I've seen make it look like a war zone right now. Well, that was the Upper Cane, probably. In the Upper Cane, I don't know why, as I say, it seems, there seemed to be, there was a place where they found some Colombian ex-FARC people there yeah. and some Venezuelans. And, and, but the influence, the international influence, so it's interesting we commented to this about this just before you came. We were talking about the international influence that, that Evo talks about, you know, the involvement of the the embassy, the U.S. embassy, and and the U.S. influence within Bolivia and meddling in their politics and everything else. But then, three days ago, or two days ago, Cuba announced that it was going to pull out 725 functionaries from Bolivia. Well, what are functionaries? Well, most of them are doctors. Mm. But they've been sent over by Cuba to work in yeah, Bolivia. And to have some and kind send of money back to, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
And they've already taken one plane load out, 224 of them already arrived back from Havana. Is that because they're worried that with a right-wing government that the, um, the non-indigenous people or the, the non-natives of Bolivia will, that there will be pushback against that demographic or? Like would why, why would they push them back? Is this an economic move or are they concerned for their safety? Um, it's probably a bit of both. Um, I don't think it's necessarily economic. I think it will, I think it's almost reprisals by Cuba because, because of most of them are medical staff mm-hmm. and they're pulling out a whole 725 medical staff pulling out of the country is it's going to make a big difference to the hospital systems. I mean, the hospital just down the road mm-hmm. from our boys' home was known as the Cuban hospital because wow. the amount of Cubans that were there. So is it kind of Cuba saying, because you didn't back the person we want in power, we're removing all the assistance that we have given you? In a way, but at the same time, they uh, most of these Cubans came in with no visas and no paperwork. They're not their legal. They used to they used to, they used to have a flight that arrive in Santa Cruz, land in Santa Cruz, three o'clock in the morning, and they just walk in. We we've actually had Cubans that have become Christians while they've been there, because it's been a few years. We've approached us and said, Can you help us stay? We don't want to go back. We like it here. Can you help us stay? And I said, Well, I can't offer you a job because you're not legally in the country. I can't offer you help. And I, I, I talked to a guy one time and I said, well, I said, well, how can you legalize yourself? And he said, well, I have to marry a Bolivian. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me you're not a matchmaker. <laughs> so, yeah. so there's, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of influence from outside from Cuba and from Venezuela and from maybe from some of the, the ex rebels in Colombia as well. Uh, but then every country has some international influence. Yeah, I mean, there's meddling in all of that. Whether it's, you know, but I think there's, there's a, almost a, there's a fear of too much meddling from the state. Um, but on the other hand, from the way I see it, and having lived and worked alongside an American couple in Bolivia for 30 years as well, um, the amount of meddling from the states in Bolivia, I believe, is, is probably pretty low and pretty insignificant mm-hmm. because we're a nation of 11 million people with very little trade with the states, very little. I mean, the, the meddling part would be... Argentina. <laughs> well, no, but the meddling <laughs> part within Bolivia would be to do with the Coca-Cola. They, the they removed the DEA out. Well, forgotten. because they all threw out an, an ambassador and threw out the DEA. Mm-hmm. But that's created problems for us because now cocaine is far more available than Bolivia, which means that we suffer more with the street children we work with because they're addicted to cocaine instead of food. Yeah. That's... There's just so many cards in play yeah, in a situation like that. And it's difficult for us as Americans who've known relative 
political stability, even though it may not feel that way if you read your Facebook feed. <laughs> yeah. It is relatively <laughs> political. The stability. Politically yeah. stable. Yeah. Um, we've had peaceful transitions of power, mm -hmm. um, whiny transitions of power, but peaceful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, what would you say to to get back to this passage? I, I know, this is the tricky part. This is the whole reason I want you here. But what's difficult is uh, the Christians have um, played a big part in voicing their opinion for what's best for the country. Um, but, well, maybe we should put one thing in context. This passage, when it's written, was under Roman rule, and it's written to the Romans. Mm -hmm where they're in the center of the empire, mm -hmm. where opposition gets struck down quickly and usually resulted in, um, I mean, the emperors were known for going through and killing tens of thousands of people if they needed to, to clear the slate so that all of their opposition was gone. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's something contextually to that, that Paul is just saying, I don't want you guys to die right? for, yeah. no, for no reason. Yeah. Um, but this passage has been used by governments to suppress their populations, saying you're supposed to submit to us. God has placed place us God. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, when whichever government we've had in Bolivia, and especially when Evo Morales and his regime came into power in Bolivia, um, the leadership of the of the mission down there, we basically took the decision that we will submit to the authorities unless they ask us to do something that is actually against God's law and is actually sinful, mm -hmm. then we will do whatever they require of us and jump through all the hoops that they require of us and rewrite our bylaws and do everything that they've asked us. And, and we've always done that. And what you mean by that? Everything. Is that you... you abide by all the laws they place for you to continue to be a not-for-profit yeah. in Bolivia. You're willing to jump through all the hoops to yeah. keep yourself legal mm -hmm. so that you can continue to do the work that you are doing. Yeah. Because if they will ask you to do something that is against your conscience or the teachings of Christ, that's where the difference comes in. Yeah. Because there are some rules that are probably in place that are annoying or well, make well, your job the harder. Amounts, the amount of requirements that you since 2006 when he came to power huge. I mean, we've had to do an awful lot more paperwork, a, lot of, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, and we're still not finished, so it's going to be interesting now to see where we go, because if obviously with the change again, it's going to, we've been trying to do, to, <clears throat> we've been trying to rewrite our bylaws as a mission since 2012. Because they keep changing the requirements? And every, well, yeah, right. because we keep we, we keep resubmitting them and they are, they'll say, well, we've got to do this, change this, change this, and then they rewrite the law and make you start again. And, but we all keep doing it and we keep doing it because we feel that you know, this particular scripture is respecting those authorities and unless they're asking, to do, asking us to do something that really is contrary to God's law, then we have no reason why we shouldn't submit to it. Because in any country, 
you have to respect the laws of where you're working mm -hmm. uh, and fulfill them and to the best of your ability to be able to fulfill God's calling on your life. So then what would you view the role of a Christian in a revolution like this? Because a revolution like this is not submitting to the government. The revolution like this is rooted in we see the government as doing wrong, we're standing up against it. It's, and it's, I think it's different because they're not putting ridiculous roadblocks in the way of you continuing to be a not-for-profit. Mm -hmm. There's actually a maybe immoral, illegal activity that's going on with somebody trying to take power that's not theirs. I think there's, there's the difference that lies in there. I think we, you, as we've always done as a mission, we look at where's our, how do we protect our integrity? If you see an electoral, electoral process, an obvious, um, it's obvious that fraud has been committed and that there needs to be a change, then you're going to be there to support that change. Yeah. Um, and, and peacefully and encourage the peace, the peaceful point. I mean, we've had our whole team, we communicate by WhatsApp all the time and that's been our prayer the whole time was peace and no violence and, and trying to maintain the work that we have through blockades. We've had our staff running around on bicycles to support food and money. Well you mentioned on at church on Sunday that you have one of your a couple of your people ride their bicycle 20, 15, 20 miles. Yeah. Just to just make to sure the, the homes are provided with what they needed through all this. And our staff instead of doing <clears throat> Uh, eight to sixteen hour shifts have been doing two week shifts because they can't get through the blockades to just do a, a, a simple change of shifts. Wow. So it's been very demanding on our staff to, to maintain the work there. But at the same time, the kids have been great. The kids have understood the difficulties and you know and accepted a bit of rationing in the homes and things like that to make sure that we, they survive and everything's okay. That's the life of going above and beyond you know, to make sure that they're provided for because our homes are outside the city. So they've mm -hmm. had to go just to go to the bank. Yeah, yeah. they had to go through five blockades on bicycles. On bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> that can be dangerous too, that. right? Absolutely. You know, carrying cash as well, coming out because it's still a cash society. So, he, so somebody went through five blockades carrying cash mm -hmm. so somebody could go to the bank and make a deposit? Well, no, to oh, draw. Oh, so they would draw the money to, draw, to get food. To buy food. food. That's his other round, yeah. Then, and either as it was, had to then cycle out 15 miles from the girls' home, 22 miles from the boys' home to, to give cash because they couldn't come into the city to buy provisions. They had to get their provisions at the local little town and little market. Mm -hmm. So they've had a lot less than they normally would have done. So it's almost like that sometimes the church's role or the Christian's role is to continue to do the work of Christ in spite of the chaos that's going on around them. Because that's dedication. I mean, here it'd be like, here it's like, oh, we can't do that. It's going to put me out of. It's going to put me out of my way. I have to ride the bike how many miles to be able to continue to do something. For God? Well, or, I wouldn't be at all surprised if in the girls' home that they've been cooking on, on wood fires instead of using gas, because gas is in short supply throughout the country yeah. at the moment because of all these blockades and strikes. 
And that's ironic because you guys are sitting on one of the largest natural gas reserves in the entire world. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the distribution of gas they were saying in the pies at the moment, because because now it's the the masses, the water borders that are blocking. Mm -hmm. the city, there's a lot of uh, scarcity of gas and food and stuff. Mm -hmm. So does that mean the, the staff members who are trying to ha get cash to feed the kids who are in the children's homes right now are going through blockades that are put on by Evo's people? No, no. Okay. Probably not now in Santa Cruz because the blockades mainly for uh, Evo supporters are mainly in La Paz, okay. uh, Cochabamba, and Yapacani. Yeah. So, town so it's not, it's not a national country. uprising right now. No, that was in the past. That was isolated. Isolated. Yeah. Yeah. isolated. Still, the point about having cash at a blockade where <laughs> people haven't worked in three weeks. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that that is a life and death situation. Well, we, we, we sent our administrator, uh, a young lady, with uh, two guys, and they, they couldn't cycle through the blockades. They had to dismount and walk through, negotiate their way through almost each time. Uh -huh. right. What do you mean by negotiate? Like, can we please pass or here's, yeah, people here's some money and we have one of I think we're going to get served. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, they would say, they would say yeah, we're working towards the environment, trying to Makes me wonder if there was a blockade in the U.S. How many members of churches or pastors of churches? Let's even just leave it to the staff of the church. If there's a blockade, day like, off. How many pastors would risk their lives to ride a bike 25 miles to bring food back for the kids and women in their ministries? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. it's it kind of puts you to shame. It kind of puts the, the Western Church to shame. Why it's well, we look at the situation in the UK at the moment. You know, changing politics to the other side of the pond uh, with Brexit. There's a number of people who are stockpiling mm -hmm. their favourite stuff because they think if we leave Europe, all of a sudden they won't be able to buy their favourite brand of whatever it is. You know, and you think, gosh, we we were in a a, a, a a comfortable first world country and all right there some things may be in short supply for a couple of months it'll come back <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> wow you know people are just which i don't think we mentioned that comfortable you're, you're from england uk yeah. I don't know if we mentioned that at the beginning, so that could be confusing. Well, hopefully people have picked it out that you don't have a you, know, you don't have a Bolivian accent. That, although you do speak fluently, uh, Spanish is what they speak. Yeah. So, um, but you were actually a police officer in um, the UK, and so when when you're faced with at first the police supported Morales early on. And then when they saw the tide turning against them, they actually backed the supporters or the yeah. The started in, once again, that that mutiny, as it was called in the papers in Bolivia, started in Cochabamba, which once again was the traditional support base of Evo Morales in, in one of the cities that would would have historically been his supporters. It started not from the high ranks either. It started in. In the low ranks. Well, he yeah. tried giving the high-ranking officials money, didn't he? He did. He paid. No, he gave everybody. He gave everybody. He gave everybody bonuses in the yeah. military <clears throat> and the police. 
the week before. And they still was prepping Roman Caesars have done that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. But once in Cochabamba, once that happened, then it was snowballed mm -hmm. to, to the police countrywide. Um, and then the police were then uh, kind of encouraging the, the armed forces to take the same step. And the armed forces did as well, but they did it all peacefully this time. This, is the, this has been the remarkable thing. Um, there was a Bolivian guy who works in Paraguay with our mission who's been I've known since we've been down in Bolivia, and he, he was commenting on one of the groups that we have of leaders around um, uh, South America. He was saying that normally this situation in Bolivia, three decades ago, would have been a total bloodbath. There would have been hundreds dead by now. So that does show that there, there's a change, and that uh, even though there has been violence uh, and difficulty and confrontation, the actual bloodshed has been way less than it would have been. And we said earlier, like eight numbers recently on a clash that was a month, additional yeah, six maybe? No, there were ten before, I okay. think about eight of the of the coke growers apparently, but I don't, I haven't found out the situation mm -hmm. that one. So. But overall, I say a couple of decades ago, two or three mm -hmm. decades ago, that would have been hundreds by now. To, to me, the value here for like our listeners, um, which we do have some listeners in Bolivia, which might, do, do. It might yeah. just be you. So Bolivia, um, but for most of our listeners that are in America, to me, the value of listening to this and hearing you speak and the reason that I begged Paul to get you um, last minute when you have to leave tomorrow morning <laughs> um, was I just thought that it's so important for Christians in America to hear what Christians in a upside down state um, in a place of turmoil how they're living how they're um, behaving as Christians amidst the chaos and I think Paul your quote was probably what should be shared to social media that just the role of Christians is to keep being Christians in the chaos yeah. and being Jesus. Mm -hmm. So thanks for coming out. Yeah. Well, it's been good. Thank you, Ron. Yeah. Always good. And we're going to start recording on a more regular basis, I think Dan and I decided. Yeah, we've got some cool guests lined up. Yeah. Wow. Who do we have lined up? Want to tease anybody? Well, the one that I know for sure is somebody that we met at the Water to Wine convention which we recorded our Jonah episode um, while we were there. And we talked about it and we shared some live videos from our Airbnb um, when that was happening. You and I got silly and posted some weird videos um, of the golf cart. And the stuff, golf I think. cart, yeah. So anyway, while we were there, we briefly met a guy named Carl Forehand who um, has moderated discussions at the Water to Wine Facebook group that you and yep. I both follow and comment on from time to time. And he has a, written a book called Apparent Faith, and he's agreed to come on our podcast. He's excited about it. Yep. Um, so I think at this point, we're just waiting. You were going to download it. I'm going to download it. I already listened to it. To it. It's really good. Yep. So I'm excited, excited to listen to him. 
and we have to record our final Satan yes. episode. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, yeah. Yeah. We've done. As Roger's like, should I get out of the, should I get out of the chair here and by the way, Satan is Satan. Um, we did. We're doing a three-part series on Satan in the Bible because it's one of those things where once we realize kind of the activity surrounding Satan, how he develops. We can begin to talk about other things more clearly, which I think our big picture was we wanted to tackle hell yeah. as well. We wanted to tackle heaven. So it really comes down to how spirituality and the spiritual realm develops throughout the course of the Bible. And we started with the Old Testament. We did the intertestamental period. And now we're going to see what the New Testament has to say about this character of Satan. Because in the Old Testament, there's really only three occasions at which... He pops up by name. And so um, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's a night and day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we have one more of those to record. And then we'll start tackling hell, heaven. Yeah. Dan's in a lot of the legwork for that already. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. And then we, uh, um, this is a new one, but a guy that my wife went to school with is currently working on his thesis under N.T. Wright at St. Andrew's Divinity School. Yep. And um, I'm going to try to get him, if he's willing to, speak about his thesis, which is an interesting topic. I'm not going to mention it just in case he says no, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but he's got a really fascinating topic for his thesis that he has to actually present to M.T. Wright. Um, that would be slightly intimidating. Yeah, that would be intimidating. It's um, not like you sit down and say, hey, Tom, let's talk about... <laughs> yeah. For those of you on the podcast, you've heard us quote M.T. Wright many times. Yeah. But yeah. So, but we'll sign off for tonight. Yep. What did you drink? Um, I had a bitter, I mean, a, um, a, bitter? a sour today. It's by Rogue. And it's just a pinch. It's a sour session <laughs> ale made with hand harvest salt from Newport Bay. And I had two of them because they're absolutely delicious. I'm on a sour kick right now. Me too. Well, um, only mine wasn't so. But we did both, um, but I am on a sour kick. Yeah. We both picked up Oregon beers. Yes, this one is Oregon. And we didn't collaborate because I'm drinking Deschutes and it is called Fresh Haze. And it's got a ton of citrus notes. So if you like that kind of citrus hops, um, IPA, it has really good flavor. It's not overbearing, um, but you definitely get the kick of the hops and I'm ready for a nap. Yeah. Well, hopefully everybody enjoyed the episode today. Um, yeah. We are going to be recording on a more consistent basis. We said that before, but we're going to do it again. Yeah. And um, 2020 is a new year. 2020 is <laughs> coming up soon. But thanks for listening and we will see or catch you guys in the next one. See ya.